Let's pray. Father, the significance of this day is not lost on us. Although we probably don't have near the grasp of the significance of the resurrection that we should, we thank you that in your grace you have given us a record, a historical account of what you did in the life death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and the significance of that for us and for our salvation. So, Father, as we look today for, at the, the historical and the factual evidences for the resurrection, I pray that um, this discussion serves to strengthen our hope and what happened there. I pray that all of this would be to the glory of Christ in His name. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. All right. Well, He is risen. And that's a good thing. Um, we're taking a break. We've been going through the, um, the, the doctrines of grace. Uh, we're taking a break uh, today on Resurrection Day. Uh, to discuss seven reasons the Savior is alive. And I want to read from you from Acts, uh, read to you from Acts 3 and 4 about the, the initial claims of the church regarding the resurrection of Jesus. Look at Acts 3, um, looking at verse 13. This is Peter uh, speaking. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and the God of our fathers glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. And look again in verse uh, 26. God, having raised up His servant, sent Him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And look at chapter 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. <clears throat> This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And look at verse 33. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. All right. In, in our culture today... There is a hunger for um, a belief system that satisfies experientially. We're looking for stuff that makes us feel important, that makes us feel satisfied. Uh, we want to we feel affected by something. We want to feel woke. 
right? That the, that the way uh, it's described today. Christ meets those needs uh, and satisfies our souls. But lots of people claim that lots of different religions do that. I mean, Mormons claim that there's, they, they feel a burning in the bosom, right? There's an experiential thing with them. Uh, environmentalists feel like they're changing the world. The, the Branch Davidians had their felt needs met. Uh, even the Mafia kind of fits that when you think about it. I mean, it's nice to get a paycheck and it's good to have brothers, sort of, right? I want to suggest that for truth to be true, it must be not only experientially satisfying, but intellectually credible. In our day, we get the first point. We want the experience. We want the oprification of the culture to have experience. You're special. But we often fail to investigate the second. Is it true? Um, so it's Resurrection Sunday. And I want to look at the linchpin argument that Peter and John are making in chapters 3 and 4 in, in Acts. Has Jesus Christ risen from the dead? And Christianity is experientially satisfying. It changes lives. But is it true? The Christian faith comes with a challenge. When you come to Christ, when you come into the doors of the church, there's a challenge. Test and see if the resurrection of Christ is true or false. It's a historical claim. It, it's either, it either is or it ain't, right? If Christ is not raised, then Paul says we Christians are the most to be pitied. Is it true? So I want to give you Seven historical reasons that the church has argued for the, um, the evidence that Christ is alive. Let's look at number one. And I went Baptist, so all these begin with the letter S. So here it is. First is evidence of his scripture. Evidence of his scripture. Everything meaningful we know about Christ is contained in scripture. Everybody does this. Everybody appeals to an ultimate authority. There is no neutrality. Um, those who deny Christianity rely upon their reason, right? The, my reason is the ultimate authority. Others rely upon their experience. My experience is the ultimate authority. Uh, the words of Gandhi are my ultimate, whatever. Everybody has an ultimate authority. Christ, the Christian worldview is based upon the ultimate authority of the Bible what God has revealed of Himself to people. And that's where we stop. Has Scripture testified that Jesus rose from the dead? Yes. Uh, and since it's self-authenticating as the Word of God, and that's an entirely separate series that we may get to, is how do we trust the Bible? Why do we trust the Bible? But I'm assuming that everybody in here does. So, given that it's self-authenticating, that alone should be enough to settle the issue. And, and even so, even given that presupposition, the testimony of Scripture is consistent with the evidence. Um, first of all, the, the very existence of the New Testament is evidence of the resurrection. If they had found the body, we wouldn't have the books. Right? There would be no reason to write them. The existence of the book is evidence of his resurrection. The New Testament has been subjected to more criticism than any other work of antiquity and has withstood, and has withstood the, the attack. 
the reliability of it is is staggering. It's staggering, based, you know, in compared to other ancient books. Uh, has anybody did, did anybody take Latin or ancient literature any at any time in high school? College? Okay, so do you remember Caesar's Gallic Wars? Remember, all of Gaul is three parts. Omnia Gallia as tres partes. Remember? Okay, so that book is considered to be a definitive history of Caesar's conquest of France, of Gaul. And every historian goes back to it. And the earliest manuscript copy that we have of that record, that Caesar's record, is what? Several hundred years afterwards. 900 years afterwards. 900. We've got manuscripts of the New Testament dating back to 80 AD. They're fragments. The earliest full manuscripts around 200, 300. But we have consistent record of the books as they were written that you have in front of you going all the way back to the first century. Yeah. Also, the, we have more fragments of the New Testament than any other um, and book of antiquity. That's right. We have more fragments of the New Testament closer to the day it was written than any of, any of Plato's writing. Any of Plato? No any of Homer? I mean, the guys who study Plato are like, what are you guys arguing over? We would love to have fragments this early. So the, the documentary evidence for the authenticity of what we have in front of us is overwhelming. The do, you know, there it is. Um, the, the scholarship that we have confirms that by the end of the 19th century, archaeological discoveries had established the accuracy of the New Testament manuscript copies, placing their origination at the latest of 80 AD, less than 50 years after Christ. Over 24,000, I think is what you're getting at, over 24,000 copies of early New Testament manuscripts are known to be in existence today. And the claims of, just because the words are, are accurate or are incredibly close to um, the accuracy that, that we have from the first century, just because the words are there, the, the documents themselves claim to be history. Right? Luke, I want to give you an orally account. So you can be certain of these things. There's a certainty that Luke is, is gaming for in Luke-Acts. The, the, all of the Gospels are claiming to be some type of history of the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Um, he, how do they establish history? For example, Luke, what, what does he do? He goes and he talks to people. He does the research. What he didn't experience himself in the life of Paul, he went and talked to others who were there during the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Fifty years of study of Luke's writings in order to undermine them led uh, a, a scholar named Sir William Ramsey to finally conclude, Luke is a historian of the first rank. The author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. All this to say, you can be more certain about the life and death of Jesus Christ than you can that Caesar invaded Gaul. The earliest manuscripts we have of Caesar, 900, the earliest of the New Testament, 80 AD, and there's a ton of them. Okay, this isn't new. I mean, this is fairly standard argumentation for the strength of the New Testament. What is it about the Bible that causes people to get beklimped in their Ganectagazoink about the truth of Scripture? What, what, why? You don't see this kind of fight over Caesar or Homer or anybody else, Plato, anybody else. What is it about the authenticity of the Bible that causes people to get so torqued? What would you say? In your experience, what, what do people argue? 
Well, I'd say the Caesar stuff is more of just a history of what happened at this time. <clears throat> Excuse me. Whereas the Bible, it causes you to have to make a decision about yourself, about how you live your life, and people are uncomfortable with that. It causes, it, you know, it, it shows Jesus who lived a perfect life mm -hmm. and says, follow me. It calls us to action. Mm -hmm. Whereas the history is just history. So right. that, therefore, it's so polarizing. This history has bite. Yeah. Eternal repercussions. It, it, the Gaelic Wars or Homer's Odyssey don't call on us to live a certain way. Mm -hmm. they, don't call on, they don't put on us that we need a savior. Um, this is history with bite. It means something. It's significant for both unbeliever and believer if this is true. Okay, that's the first one. It's, again, 10,000-mile overview of the reasons for this. We go on and on and on about the sufficiency and, the, and, the, and the, um, the significance of the New Testament. All right, second reason. Evidence of his slaughter. Walk me through. Help me. Discuss what is the testimony of these reliable documents that we have, the New Testament. What happened? What happened? What are the stages of the cross? We went through uh, Maundy Thursday, oddly enough on Thursday, and, and we talked through some of the things, the events that, went, that, that happened. What happened first? From the garden forward. He gets arrested. Judas, this isn't what, this isn't what a kiss is for. And then what happens? physically to him. He's dragged before the leaders of the Jewish people. And, and what do they do to him? What do the guards do to him then? I thought they beat him afterwards. They beat him a little before, Strike him. a little during, spit and on. spit on him, prophesy, blindfolded, prophesy who hit you, right? So he's beat on then, okay? That's bad. Then what happens physically? He goes to Pilate. They take him to Pilate. Then what, then what happens? Did he get scourged? He got scourged. Pilate was apparently going to do that either way, whether he found him innocent or not. I'll punish him and then let him go. <laughs> Roman justice is a beautiful thing. Make sure. Just make sure. probably get something. That's right. Just to, just to kind of cover all bases. He had the scourging in Matthew 27, 26. And what, what, what is involved with that? With oh. the bits of stuff at the end of it, anything from bone, glass, metal, rock, anything. The Romans were collectors. They enjoyed putting things in whips to make things as difficult as possible. The victim being scourged would be bent over so that the back was maximally exposed. And the bone and the metal and the shards of glass and everything that they have are being whipped. Some chunks of flesh come off. Bones exposed, organs exposed. Some people lost eyes in the process. Some, most people died from the scourging and the blood loss and the shock more than they did ultimately the crucifixion. That's a bad thing. All right. So you have uh, the scourging. And then after the scourging, the Roman soldiers, kind-hearted souls that they were, did what? Do you remember? Take this cross and let's walk you over to Right before that, what do they do? They wrapped him in a robe. Purple robe and a crown of thorns. So, because there's not enough blood loss, let's see if we can get it pouring from the head too, right? So you've got the crown of thorns, which wasn't these little bitty things. It was big things. 
Yeah, probably something along those lines. Big, thick thorns. So there's blood coming everywhere. I mean, it's a bloodbath, basically, coming, coming out of Jesus' body. The crucifixion. He walks. He has to, they, hey, Simon, carry this, because Jesus can't make it. He's bleeding out from the scourging. So the, he's, he has to take the trip to the hill. Um, the crucifixion, they nailed wrists or hands. There's some debate over that. Probably most likely wrists from the physical evidence of it. Uh, a nailed to the crossbeam, which was secured to an upright pole. And then the victim is left to die from a combination of shock from the scourging, the blood loss, and dehydration. I thirst. Right? Uh, and then, because the Jews... Uh, didn't want to get their hands dirty on Sabbath. They often requested, if a, if a crucifixion was going on the, the night before, that Roman soldiers break the legs of the victim so that they would suffocate faster. Speed this up. Can we get this done? And so they, were, they would then go and they'd break it and the guys would not be able to push up. Of course, every, every moment is agony, right? I mean, you've got your back open from scourging and you're pushing up to get a breath and that rakes your back on that wood that's not planed, it's not smooth like you get from Lowe's, it's a rough piece of wood. And so that's agony. So they break the legs so they couldn't do that anymore. Well, when they go to Jesus, what do they say? Uh, the guards report, the guards report, he's already dead. Make sure, what do they do? Stab him in the side. Stab him in the side with a spear. And what does scripture say? What is the historical document that we have of the crucifixion say happened water and blood mingled mingled, flowed out and some doctors some medical people have gone through this thing and they and they have they have um uh, you know had some theories about what was going on there there's separation of the pericardial sac there's a there's a fluid buildup around the pericardial sac surrounding the heart due to the beating you took uh, we don't know exactly what, but there's a lot of theories about how that would happen that are consistent with the evidence of, of the record. Um, but we do know that blood and water flowed because that's what Scripture says. Joseph takes the body. Uh, Mark tells us that, 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 um, that Pilate didn't rely on Joseph's words, but he confirmed Jesus' death by the commanding officer in charge. Is he dead? Yes, he's dead. So then they gave Joseph the body. Now, there's a theory out there, and it's put out by uh, liberals. It's put out by, uh, it's sort of written into uh, the Quran that Jesus didn't die on the cross. He merely swooned and then revived later and then, you know, reclaimed resurrection. He didn't really die. It's called the swoon theory, oddly enough. Swoon is just such a fun word to say. By itself, that would be extremely impressive, given that most people would have died. Yeah. From infection. Also, it's not like the Romans were bad at killing people. Yeah, they were pretty good at it. Very good at it. Yeah, very, very good at it. The thing is, appearing to 500 and others afterwards, he wouldn't be very impressive. Right. I've entered into a new reign of uh, plane of existence, and he's looking like a. I'm back. I'm back yeah. completely. Yeah, just scarred. Yeah. Also, the uh, Muslims believe that it was uh, Judas who. Yeah. Who the other, the other theory that they have is that Judas. Well, please. <laughs> uh, anyway. Yeah. Uh, so 
I, I just, you've all said it. Let's put it in context here. He's exhausted. He's traumatized. He's hemorrhaging an immense amount of blood. Uh, he's hanging on a cross, his side ripped open by a spear, but he's alive. And through the whole process of taking him down from the cross, carrying his body to the garden, to the tomb, wrapping it in grave clothes, laying it in a tomb, nobody noticed he's still breathing? And this is also the assumption, you know, the, the guards were very careful taking down this dead body. Yeah, exactly. We're, of course, they're not just going to drop the, the cross. It's not no. something that they're going to carefully take down. No. So, he, they don't notice he's still breathing. He's, still, he's in the tomb. So, 36 hours later, he wakes out of his coma in the tomb, wrapped in grave clothes, put on what John testifies but with 75 pounds of ointment on him going through all of this. Uh, that, that mixture, uh, the sticky mixture that they used to embalm. Uh, not to mention, there's a two-ton rock, right? Kind of a significant thing to move on a good day. But 36 hours after being beaten and crucified, uh, gonna be a tough, tough thing to move a two-ton rock. Uh, and then overcoming all the guards who are outside, told to guard the place, on penalty of death, after moving a two-ton rock. On penalty of death, they're to, they're to guard the place. And then he makes his way to the city, presumably naked, as the grave clothes were left behind. And then he's going to convince his disciples. Naked, beaten, worn down. Probably infected. Probably some kind of infection, because they didn't have antibiotics back then, which are a good thing. Antibiotics help you. Uh, only to convince his disciples that he had conquered death and broken through to a new radiant dimension of life. There have been a lot of conspiracy theories on the death of JFK. <laughs> Some of them are credible. <laughs> to, to be honest, that sounds more unbelievable than he just came back. He died when he came back. I agree. It's preposterous. It's ridiculous. The, the historical evidence of the resurrection of Christ is pretty clear. It's pretty clear. All right, that's... I'm just not convinced personally by the swoon theories. All right, the second reason, second evidence. The evidence of the spectators. What do we know about the number of witnesses to the resurrection? Was anybody there in the tomb with him? No, they weren't. But they saw him die. And then what do we know about later witness testimony? They saw him not being dead. They saw him not being dead. It says in 1 Corinthians 15:6, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. What's the implication there? Go ask them. These are brothers. Go ask them. Over 500 who saw him alive after the time he died. Or as Shai of Lynn has said in his four-minute, 17-second treatise on this subject, imagine 500 people in a court of law, each of them taking the stand reporting what they saw. If their stories lined up and made sense, the evidence would have to leave you convinced. But still, it's by faith 
that we trust and praise the Son who was raised for our justification. Line them up in court and question them for six minutes apiece and you'd have 50 hours of testimony to the risen Christ from one event. That's compelling. Um, but it reminds me of that parable, Lazarus and the rich man, where, La where, where uh, the rich man says, let me go back and tell my brothers about this place, hell. And what does is, what is Abraham say? They won't believe you even if someone were to raise from the dead. And all these evidences we're talking about, we still have to keep in mind that the mind is not neutral. The human heart is not neutral. We go back to what we talked about before with total depravity. Everything is infected by sin. Everything is an, an open rebellion against the Creator. But let's look at another evidence. And I love this one. It starts with a C. I'm sorry, but it has an S sound. It's, it's good. Evidence of the cynics. Evidence of the cynics. How could these Jewish leaders and Jewish rulers have put an immediate stake in the heart of this claim by Peter and John? They're right there. He's saying, he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. What could they have said? Where's the body? So that, that shuts it down, right? Go open the tomb. Pull out the body. Let's see. Bring it out. Could have shut it down. Did they? No, they didn't. Um, neither in the scriptural historical narratives nor any other historical work do we see any claim from that period that the body of Jesus was produced. The silence of the Jews is just as powerful a witness as the proclamation of the apostles. These are their adversaries and they can't produce a body. The Roman guards, rather, testify, yeah, we were there all night and don't know what they're talking about? Is that what they say? No. They went AWOL out of fear. Think about that. Roman soldiers fleeing a tomb. Battle-hardened guys, right? They don't flee anything. Battle-hardened guys fleeing the tomb out of fear. Thomas was a cynic. He said, unless I see the, the wounds in his hand and feet, unless I see the wound in his side, I will not believe. And then, testimony in, in, in Luke is later, my God and my King. Now, would he say that to a guy who swooned? No. But would he say that to the risen Christ? You better believe it. Uh, what about Paul? A religious terrorist. Radical transformation because of his claim that he had seen the risen Christ. Listen to what he says. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Evidence of those who were the critics of Christianity, the enemies of the cross, clearly um, show that something happened. <clears throat> Transformation of Paul, transformation of Thomas, the silence of the Jews. These are all people who had a stake in the claim to say, yeah, he's still dead, I'm not going to believe. They couldn't do it. Evidence of his circle of friends. Circle of friends. Um, the most unlikely people to believe that Jesus rose from the dead were the people around him. They knew him. They'd eaten with him. They lived with him for three years. And to a man, the twelve apostles... And I mean the ones after, you know, 
we'll put Matthias in there instead of Judas. Um, the 12 apostles died or suffered severe persecution for the simple claim that Jesus had risen from the dead, confirming that he was the one true God. First of all, remember, these were Jews. We wouldn't expect that kind of action from Jews. There is a creator-creature distinction. They, they don't... They don't, bless you. They don't, uh, they don't, uh, it, it, is a, it is blasphemy to them to attribute deity to a man. So Jews wouldn't do that normally. Something happened. Uh, but there's not that, uh, you know, on the, on the east and west of them. The Jews were kind of this, the, the, the ones who maintained that, that uh, singular creator-creature distinction. All right, but Peter was transformed from a quick-tempered coward to the preacher we see in, the, in this passage and, and in others. Um, John, who had also run from uh, the, the arrest of Jesus, stands boldly with Peter. James would later be beheaded. Peter would be crucified. John boiled alive but survived until he died a natural death in the 90s. Uh, of the twelve, he was the only one who died of old age. All the others were martyred because they proclaimed the truth of the resurrection. Think of his brothers, Jude and James. Think of your brothers. Would it ever, in, think of your sister. Yeah, would it ever, who, yeah, yeah, in the Gospels we see that his brothers were not, his family did not believe that he was the Messiah, maybe except Mary. Um, they thought he was crazy. What is the testimony of Scripture to them? We got two books written by his brothers claiming, I'm his servant. I'm his slave. Would you ever say that about your brother? No. Would you ever say that about your sister? There's an emphatic no by Audrey. <laughs> she would never say that about Emma. Um, unless something happened. Would you believe your brother and sister was fully God and fully man? <laughs> uh, all right. And yet 1 Corinthians 15, 7 says he appeared to them also. All right, next evidence. Evidence of his Sabbath. Evidence of his Sabbath. Nothing is more fixed in Jewish tradition than worship on the Sabbath is taught in the law of Moses. What accounts for the switch by Jews from Saturday to Sunday? Why would you do that as a Jew? Something happened. Uh, Acts 20 verse 7 is the first reference in Acts to worship on Sunday. Um, uh, let's see, I'll read that real quick. 20 verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. That's when the poor kid fell from the window. This is why we don't open windows at Sylvania after long Saturday nights. All right. First uh, Corinthians 16.2, um, you see there also a Jewish expression for Sunday. Let me get there real quick just so we have it in our heads. 16.2, it says, On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So you have 
uh, similar to the phrase that was used in the Gospels to describe the day of the week on which Jesus rose from the dead. And you see, um, see that in the record. Matthew 28, 1, Mark 16, 2, Luke 24, 1, and John 20, verse 1. So this shows that Christians gathered for worship on Sunday, not Saturday, in order to acknowledge the crucial importance of Christ's resurrection. All right, final point. Evidence of his staying power. Evidence of his staying power. It works. I'm telling you, all S's. Took me forever. All right. He said he would resurrect. He promised he would. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. John 2, 19. And he was ridiculed for saying it. We saw him being ridiculed at his trial in Matthew 26, 61. And, and they said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. On the cross, they were saying to him, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. That's Matthew 27, 40. And then before Pilate, they said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. They knew what he meant. He said he would do it. And he did it. He claimed to be God. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And what was their response? They wanted to stone him. Would you stone somebody if you didn't think they were making a blasphemous case? No. That's what they're responding to. They're responding to, they know he's claiming to be God. Um, here's one that I think is often overlooked about the significance of the life of Jesus and his claim to a resurrection. What kind of person would institute a ceremony to be remembered by? At the Last Supper, do this in remembrance of me. Would Martin Luther King ever do that? Would we think he was a nutcase for doing that? Gandhi, Buddha, any of these guys that are considered to be religious heroes in the world, they would be mocked for doing that, and yet Christ did that. Celebrate my death. Celebrate my resurrection. And the church has done that for 2,000 years. They've done that. Um, until I drink with you in my Father's kingdom. Who does that? All right. Top 10 influential people, there's a study done on the top 10 influential people in history of the world, and they came down to the most spectacular two who, because of the character of their lives, people ask, not who are you, but what are you, right? Two people, guess who they are? One, Jesus. The other, Buddha. They ask, Buddha, what are you? And he said, don't follow me. I'm not a god. Don't follow me. Follow my dharma, my teaching. Okay, so he, he put it off. Jesus said, I'm God, and took the worship as God. And people didn't think that was weird. Many claim to be God and gather a small number of misfits who believe them. And nothing compels the rest of us to study their lives or that they have any impact in history. Only Jesus claimed to be God, and Jesus convinced a lot of people with his life that he was what he claimed to be, and then proved it by raising himself from the dead.
There's a study I'd love to do sometime with you on the, the work of each person of the Godhead in the resurrection. It's a beautiful study. The Father's role in the resurrection, the Son's role in the resurrection, the Spirit's role in the resurrection. It's, it's really an amazing thing. But we don't have time for that um, today, unfortunately. All right. So what's the significance? Who cares that he rose from the dead? Does it, does it matter? It's kind of, a, kind of a significant thing for both unbelievers and believers. For the unbeliever, here's the significance of it. Paul says in Acts 17.31, Because he, God, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That's the significance for the unbeliever of the resurrection. God has appointed Christ and assured a judgment for sin through Jesus Christ. And it says in righteousness. Whose righteousness? Christ's righteousness. The judge says, I'm judging you by my life, by, my, by the standard of my obedience, by the standard of my reflection of the image of God. You're going to be judged. Did you live up to that standard as an unbeliever? And the response of the unbeliever, if they can even look him in the glorious face, which they won't, is going to be no. That's a significant thing. The resurrection is an assurance to an unbeliever that they will be judged for sin. And, and all, it's assurance to all of us that judgment is there. That's a significant thing. Charles Spurgeon said this, Young men and maidens, since you may perish ere you reach your prime, it is time to seek the Lord. Ye who feel the first signs of decay, quicken your pace. It's speaking to me. That hollow cough, that hectic flush, are warnings which you must not trifle with. With you it is indeed time to seek the Lord. Did I observe a little gray mingled with your once luxurious tresses? <laughs> not mine. Years are stealing on apace, and death is drawing near by hasty marches. Let each return of spring arouse you to set your house in order. Dear reader, if you are now advanced in life, let me entreat and implore you to delay no longer. There is a day of grace for you now. Be thankful for that. But it is a limited season and grows shorter every time that clock ticks. Here in this silent chamber, on this first night of another month, I speak to you as best I can by paper and ink and from my inmost soul. As God's servant, I lay before you this warning. It is time to seek the Lord. There is assurance of coming judgment because of the resurrection. Seek the Lord while he may be found. What is the significance of the resurrection if we are found in him? Why is it important? First, there should be joy. Luke 24, 52 and 53, And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Second, there should be assurance that because he is accepted, we are accepted. I love this in Ephesians 1. Paul's praying 
for the believers in Ephesus, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And then he says in chapter 2, verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why is that even possible? Because Christ has been raised. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in your mortal bodies, Paul says. That because He is raised, we know that even though we may face death, we may face mortality, Christ has risen and therefore we will be risen with Him. That's great assurance. And finally, there should be hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may be bound in hope. And all of this hope in Christ comes because He is risen and He is risen indeed. Let's pray. I'll let you go. Father, thank You that the glorious truth of the resurrection is intellectually satisfying. The evidence that you raised Christ from the dead, that he raised himself from the dead, that the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead, is overwhelming. And that should have a profound effect on, on us experientially. It should cause great joy. And we know that the gift of joy is a fruit of your spirit working powerfully in us. God, don't make us, don't allow us to remain numb and, and apathetic to the glorious truth that Christ is raised and that we are seated with Him already in heavenly places because You've raised us up with Him. Help us to have a zeal to hunger and thirst for Him and Him alone. More than comfort, more than uh, a secure paycheck, more than um, the ideal spouse in our heads, that Jesus would be magnified, that He would be the one that we are seeking after today while He may be found. I thank You that He found us. May we always be comforted and assured by the glorious truth that we are in Him because He is alive forevermore. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You should have just streamed Jesus is alive in the background. <laughs>